We're glad you're here to celebrate Easter with us and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for our sins. Um, I remember when I was a, a young person, I grew up attending a, a church, and, um, and I remember hearing about the resurrection of Jesus, and I thought, well, that's kind of a cool trick, I guess, but it felt pretty irrelevant for my own life. You know, okay, Jesus did that. That's pretty cool. And I didn't really understand the ramifications of that. But eventually, even if you find that that was kind of a neat thing that Jesus did, and he, maybe that seemed like it was, you know, a one-off thing and it was irrelevant for you, as you begin to get older and uh, you begin to lose people that you really love, that's when the question becomes, of, like, does this really matter? Is... Because, you, you know, we, I've, we've, many of us have said goodbye to parents, uh, siblings, even children. And when that happens and we see our, the person we love, we know that they're more than just the body. There's, there's, there's a personality, there's mind, there's thinking, there's a consciousness that's there. And we look and say, where is my mother? Where is my dad? Where is this person now? And that's really, really a big question that begins to come in your mind and you begin to consider it a lot more than you ever did. And for some of us, the question comes when we consider maybe our own mortality or uh, when we consider our own sin and think, is there, uh, is there a way for me to go to heaven uh, when I die? The Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy put it this way. I, I, I love this quote. He said, when I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, you shall live also. So this morning we are looking at Luke chapter 24, and we're looking at the resurrection of Jesus and the account of the people who encountered him upon that first Sunday. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men? and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they, saw, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, there's a very famous section here called The Road to Emmaus, and I would encourage you to read that this afternoon. But we're going to skip on down uh, to verse 36. 
As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. A movie came out a few years ago called Ready Player One. And it's kind of a, it was a futuristic movie involving video games and things of this sort. Uh, Ernest Cline was actually based on a novel by him. And within the first few pages of the book, the teenage hero by the name of Wade Watts explains what he wishes people had told him when he was younger about the human condition. So this is what he said, he wanted to say to himself. Here's the deal, Wade. You're something called a human being that's a really smart kind of animal. Like every other animal on this planet, you're descended from a single-celled organism that lived millions of years ago. This happened by a process called evolution, and you'll learn more about it later, but trust me, that's really how we all got here. There's proof of it everywhere, buried in the rocks. That story you heard about how we were all created by a super powerful dude named God who lives up in the sky, total garbage. The whole God thing is actually an ancient fairy tale that people have been telling one another for thousands of years. We made it all up. Wow, that's a good way to start an Easter sermon, right? <laughs> I like the quote because it sums up uh, the assumptions and the mood of the people who live in the modern world. We live in a world where people are seeking to remove the divine presence and replace him with other things in the world. But that world that we, we've created for ourselves is pretty toxic. And if you're not paying attention, it appears to be in major crisis right now. Uh, but into this world, the message of Jesus who burst from the tomb, victorious and powerful and loving, it's not presented as a fairy tale that people made up to be able to deal with the toxic environment of meaninglessness and, uh, that we live in. It's, it's presented simply as an alternative explanation to all of the human condition, all of human living. The world that we inhabit is a world in which we can plant both feet in hope and wonder and confidently do so because the message of the resurrection of Jesus is real. It's real. So Easter is a profoundly celebratory time of rejoicing and confidence because the resurrection of Jesus really happened in the real world. It's not a myth. It's not a metaphor. It's not a magic trick. It's real. It's a real world event that changes the way that we look at what is real in the world. 
the resurrection of Jesus gives proper meaning to what it is to be a human being. Now, you're going to know that, uh, notice I have five points for this morning. They're shorter than usual, so that will make you happy. That's good. Okay. The first one is this. We have need of the resurrection because of how we were originally made. We have need of the resurrection because of how we were originally made. I, uh, I have a friend who is a Christian, and he was stumped recently by a, 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 an atheist friend who asked him, why would God make people in the first place? Why would God make human beings? Why would God make anything? And I think that's a fair question to ask, but the Bible answers that question for us. When you read back in Genesis, it says that God made us in his own image, in his likeness. And that tells us why God created us. And I'm going to take you on just a little bit of an explore of the nature of things to help you think about that question. God made us in his image. What does that mean for us? So uh, some of you are familiar with the deep sea anglerfish. Have you, do you know what I'm talking about? If you've seen Finding Nemo with uh, grandkids or children or just enjoyed movies on your own, uh, there's an anglerfish in it. It's one of those deep sea dwelling things that lives in the darkness. It has these needle-like teeth, and it's that ugly fish with the big eyes, and then it has a little antenna with a light on the end of it to attract prey. So it lives in the dark of the ocean about a mile deep, the, the deep sea anglerfish. Now, I want you to uh, just think about this for a second. Can you really have a relationship with a deep sea anglerfish? It's a mile under the water. The pressure there would be deadly for us. It's in the dark. It's completely alien. It's a hostile environment. There's no way that we could possibly have a relationship with an anglerfish. Now, let's change the image a little bit. What's, what about a whale? I, I've always wanted to be a scuba diver that has that moment, not with the great white shark, but with the whale, right? Where you're in the water and the whale comes up and you see this mammoth thing and there's kind of this underwater ballet as you kind of, you're interacting. But that's very different than when I'm playing in the water with my kids, right? It's a very different kind of interaction. So this thing is a mystery. This thing is alien. It's foreign to me. And we may be bumping up against one another, but I don't really have the same kind of relationship. So when the Bible talks about God creating us in his image, what it's saying is he's creating us to be able to enter into communion and fellowship and deep intimacy with him. So he's creating us in his likeness, in his image. So, so it's, it's not like the angler, anglerfish. It's not like a whale. It's more like the relationship of a father to a son or a parent to a child or a friend. And this is the way the Bible talks about that relationship. He made us to enter into the life, joy, and flourishing of life with him. And in doing so, he also made us to enjoy this relationship with him forever. However, for many of us, that relationship with God is a little bit more like our relationship with the anglerfish, isn't it? He's in the deep darkness. We don't really have interaction with him. He's foreign. We don't really understand him, and we're pretty sure he doesn't understand what it's like to be us. Now, the Bible says that this distance and this unknowability of God for us is not because of creation. It's because of the calamity of sin that the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about sin as not, not as a failure to just keep little rules and keep little laws. Sin is actually a condition of our hearts that leads us to reject God and not want to get as far away from Him as possible, to believe in our hearts that He's just a fairy tale, and then to live a life that somehow, that sometimes is pretty destructive for ourselves and the people around us, and so that brings guilt. And so it's not simply that God's who God is and we're who we are and there's this big gulf. No, the Bible says it's due to sin that's in our relationship with Him.
So we have need of the resurrection because of how we're made, but we also have need of the resurrection because of what's wrong with the world. In the original creation, there was no brokenness. There was no sin. There was no suffering. There was no pain originally, but now there is. And at those moments where you see God step into our world to bring his redemptive uh, help, you see all the evil and all the pain and all the sorrow push back for just a moment. And when Jesus came on the earth, the people on the earth watched that day after day. When Jesus showed up, the goodness of God burst forth, and Jesus himself, when people interacted with him, they found him the most compelling and trustworthy and wise and loving and benevolent and powerful of men. And the crowds watched this man that they were drawn to perform miracles. He rescued people. He uh, healed people. He embraced people. He counseled people. He transformed people. There were no parlor tricks, there was no hypocrisy, and there was no ego trip with Jesus. And so they watched this and they thought, when he was coming in Jerusalem, they thought, he's the one that's going to change the world. But when Jesus died, uh, this is why the reason it was such a deep blow to his disciples in the first century was because it wasn't simply a friend dying. Hope died that day. Because they thought Jesus is going to bring in all of the goodness of God into the world. And it's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to spread everywhere. And so we didn't read this. But in the road to Emmaus, if you decide to read through it this afternoon, there's a part where Jesus shows up and he's talking to these two men along the road. And he's asking them what they're talking about. And at one point in the conversation, they said this about Jesus, who they think just died. And now there's there's rumor he's been raised. And uh, this is what they said about Jesus. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they thought that Jesus, they'd hoped that Jesus was going to come and, and rescue them from oppression and from injustice and suffering and bring in the peace and freedom and unity and love of the kingdom of God. They were sure that he was the one indeed who was going to usher in the beautiful kingdom of God. And then when he died, not only did they lose this compelling man, but all the things that they hoped he was going to do, they felt they had lost that too. So evil would triumph, sadness would reign, Pain would endure, and that's the way it is if there is no Jesus raised from the dead. But then we go to the third point, which is this, is the challenge of the resurrection. Because all of a sudden, there's a claim, this guy has been raised from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, that would be hard to swallow. And it would, be even more, it would be even harder for them to swallow having seen his crucified body and laying him into the tomb. So to say, Jesus has been raised from the dead, that would be a hard thing for them to swallow. And I know modern people typically look at people back then and say, you know what, they were just primitive. They didn't know what happened when you died. And the answer is, they saw a lot more death in their time period than we saw. They saw death more daily than we ever saw. They knew what a dead body looked like, and they knew that Jesus was really dead. But they were, it was just a hard pill to swallow. How, how in the world are we going to accept this? And we read in 2411, we actually looked at this, is when the women came and said, you know, we've come to these men, these angels, and they say Jesus is raised. Verse 24, 11, it says, But these words seem to them an idle tale. And some people may translate that as a fever dream. You know, it's like when you're a delirium, you're so upset, you're, you feel like you're hallucinating. That's what, the, that's what the men were saying about the women, which men are prone to do. We just need to get over that. But uh, these women are in a fever dream, you know. Uh, it's far-fetched. This is unintelligible nonsense to them. And then when Jesus actually showed up, 
They didn't believe, not because it was too far-fetched, but it was too good to be true. Look at verse 41. They still disbelieved for joy. Am I dreaming? This cannot be Jesus. I saw him put into the tomb. I know he was dead. This can't be real. And so Jesus spent some time after that verifying uh, that what they were encountering was real so they could be sure and then pass it on to people like us who weren't there firsthand. I'm not, I'm getting older, but I'm not that old to have seen this event, right? So, but I have the account. And so in chapter 24, verse 39, he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he showed them his hands and feet. And then again in verse 48, he tells them why. He said, you are witnesses of these things. His intent was for them to do what they thought Jesus was going to do, is to start with the message of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem and take it to the very ends of the earth, to take the goodness, the joy, the laughter that God has promised in His Son and that message into the broken world to say someday, one day, Jesus is actually going to come back. The same Jesus who came back from the dead is going to come back from heaven and the world is going to be renewed and restored fully and completely, which is great news. So Jesus rose from the dead. It is an historical fact. It's not a scientific fact. You know, we, we don't have Jesus' DNA. We couldn't put it in a, in a test tube anywhere, you know, do the things we do with testable and repeatable in a laboratory. But it is an historical fact. And you can go and read all kinds of books about this. There's a, one lecturer and author named William Lane Craig. And Craig said this, the Gospels were written in such temporal and geographical proximity, meaning it was close in time and close in, in, in distance. The Gospels were written in such temporal and geographical proximity to the events they record that it would have been almost impossible to fabricate events. Anyone who cared to could have checked out the accuracy of what they reported. The fact that the disciples were able to proclaim the resurrection in Jerusalem in the face of their enemies, a few weeks after the crucifixion, shows that what they proclaimed was true. For they could never have proclaimed the resurrection under such circumstances if it had not occurred. So it really did happen, which really takes it out of the realm of something that Jesus did. You know, maybe that's pretty cool, but something even deeper. Because he tells us in Luke 24, 44, then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And what he's saying is, his death and his burial and res resurrection were not an anomaly. This was planned. In fact, this had been promised from the very first. As soon as Adam and Eve brought this sin into the world, God came and met them in that and promised that he was going to put an end to it, that he was going to redeem it. So when you look back at Genesis chapter 3, there's a promise that God makes. He says to the serpent, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to send the offspring of the woman, which was his son, and he's going to crush your head and you're going to strike his heel. And he's promising at that point the coming of Jesus. And so when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is not a story of rules and laws by which we're saved. The Old Testament is a, is a record of God answering His promise to send His Son to redeem the whole world. That's what the Old Testament 
is about. And the meaning of the resurrection is tied into that. Verses 46 and 47. So it says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So it says after he was raised from the dead, forgiveness would be proclaimed. Why is that? I'm going to explain that to you as best I can here. His death secured forgiveness. So when he was dying, he was paying for it. And then his resurrection proved that in his death, he had paid for it. So walk with me through this for just a second. The Bible, I know we talk about this as part of the life. We talk about death as a modern, in the modern world as simply part of the life cycle. Right? You, you're born, you work, you retire to the villages, and then you die. That's it. That's the life cycle. And everybody does this life cycle. There's only one component piece in that. You know, that's an optional thing. You live, you work, you're, you're born, you live, you die. That's it. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that it's part of the life cycle. The Bible says that death is a sentence, like a prison sentence. The guilty die. We weren't intended to die, but the guilty die. So that means that when we die, we're paying off the guilt-death sentence. And when the Bible talks about Jesus dying, what it's saying is Jesus has taken on our death-guilt sentence on himself. He didn't have any sin. He was never guilty. So he's taking ours on himself. And so when Jesus was on the cross and he says at the end, it is finished, what he means is I paid the debt now. And so he dies as a sign that he has really died for our sins. But then three days later, when he comes back, when he emerges from the tomb, the debt is paid. So when you see somebody who is put into prison for a crime they have committed, they come forth out of prison after they've served their debt to society, and they emerge and say, I am a free man. So when Jesus is coming forth from the tomb, he's saying, I am a free man. I'm no longer under the penalty of sin and death. But because it was not his sin, but ours, when he's coming forth from the tomb, what he's declaring is, I am a free man, and you are a free people, all who believe in me, because I have paid the debt for your sin. And coming forth from the tomb today shows that your sins have been paid for. So when we look at this event of Jesus, uh, he's, he's he's dying a real death for our real sins, and he's coming back with a real resurrection to show that he's really paid the debt for all those who trust and forgiven him. Remember we talked about that earlier with believing. I trust you. I trust you when you say that's why you died. I trust you when you say that's why you came back from the dead. And I trust you when you say that my sins are forgiven fully and completely because you paid for them. I don't have to pay for them. My heart tells me that, but I don't have to pay for it because you paid for it, right? So Jesus is saying here, it's for the forgiveness of sins. And what he's saying is you can return, that anyone can return to God. We've broken that relationship, but in Jesus, that relationship can be fully and completely restored. All our sin wiped clean we can go home to God. I heard a story several years from a pastor in my denomination named Wilson Benton. I was a college student, so that was a long time ago, uh, but I still remember it. 
And he, tell, he grew up in the Old South, and uh, he tells a story about uh, his mother getting him ready. They were going out somewhere uh, that night uh, for a party, and there's a big ceremony. And so she was told him to put, he, he had on his best knickers, you know, those little pants that come up to your knees, like you see old-timey golfers wearing. And he had on the little stockings and the shoes, and he had on, he was clean. He had his hair parted just so. And uh, she, she still had to get herself ready, so she said, uh, just hang out here, and then uh, we'll be ready to go in just a little bit. Well, while he was there waiting, his little friend from down the street showed up. His name was Fatty. Now, in the modern world, calling somebody Fatty will get you uh, at least canceled, right? Maybe beat up, you know, online. But back then, I think when somebody called you Fatty, you were like, well, I guess that's my, my name now. I'm now Fatty, okay. So Fatty came over to his house, and uh, Fatty said, hey, let's go outside and, and Wilson asked his mother. She said, yeah, just don't rough house. And so they went out to the creek behind the house. And you see where this is going. And so they knew there was a vine there. And so Fatty's saying, let's swing on the vine. And Wilson's kind of like, I, I can't swing on the vine because I've got to stay clean. And so Fatty said, if we swing on the vine and you don't fall in the water, you'll be fine. So Fatty went first just to show him. And so he grabbed the vine and he swung across and came back. And there was a little creek in the vine. And he said, see? And so Wilson got the vine, swung out, and halfway across, the vine snapped and sent him plunging into the water. He said when he came up, Fatty wasn't anywhere around. <laughs> Kid's taken off. He's gone. And he comes up spluttering, and he's, he's crawling up the side of the, the embankment trying to get out, and that just made matters worse. So he is covered, covered in mud and the water from the creek. And... Uh, so he's like, i got to run home. So he starts to run home. And as he's running home, he realized, I can't go home. My mother's going to kill me. And so he stops and says, but I've got nowhere else to go. I've got to go home. But he start, and so he started to run home. And at this point, he realizes, I can't go home because what's my mother going to say? She told me not to get dirty. I, I was in my best clothes to go through this thing. And so he just stops where he is, and he doesn't know what to do, and he just starts crying because he knows, I disobeyed, but I can't go home. And that's when he looked, and he saw his mother running to where he was, all with her heels, with her best dress on, with an apron around her waist, with her hair just so, and she ran over to where he was, and she dropped her knees and just grabbed him and pulled him close. And he just sat there and wept. And she took her apron, and she began to wipe the mud off of his face and off of his clothes. And uh, I remember Wilson Benton talking about that, and he said, that is a picture of Christ. His mother wrapped him up in her arms, even though he was dirty, and she comforted him, comforted him with her love, even though he had disobeyed. And that's exactly how Jesus meets us. He comes to us when we're dirty. We don't get clean. We're still dirty. And he comes to us, and he embraces us and takes the dirt on himself, and then he cleans us, and he washes us off in his love. That's what he's saying here. When he says that he has come and died for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the meaning of Easter, is Jesus died and rose again, not as a parlor trick, but as an act of salvation to redeem the people he loved the most, us, those who call upon him by faith. Amen. So, amen. So what else does it mean? Because it means that. But let me tell you some other things that it means. Number one, the life of the re resurrection explains to us the true nature of the world.
the resurrection of Jesus really happened in the real world. Yes, we live in a world of microscopes and science and technology, but we also live in a world of miracles and resurrection, sin and redemption. These things are not in conflict at all, right? This place is not a rotting wasteland of, of meaninglessness. The place we live is infused with the grace and the truth of God as seen in the resurrection of Jesus. It proves it. Uh, so Timothy Keller says this. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So the resurrection shows us this larger reality. We trust him. We believe a guy who says that he can, he's going to rise from the dead and then does it, I'm just going to listen to that guy. The reality of our resurrection, it shows of our resurrection. Uh, I find that people talk in very vague terms about life after death in our culture. This really makes it more specific. It doesn't make this kind of vague idea that maybe there's life after death. It, this makes it wonderfully avoidable, unavoidable. Jesus died. Jesus is risen. Jesus is coming back. And so am I. And so are all who believe in him. This is unavoidable for his people. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul realized this, and he talked about Jesus as being the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. So think about it this way. Jesus is there with the apostles and what we just read. He's got hands, he has feet, he has a body, he has bones, he has flesh. He's eating fish, right? He's in a real resurrection body, and what the Bible's saying is you will have a resurrection body. And I find that awesome. And I know that you find that awesome. And if you don't find that to be awesome right now, then let's all stand up and do some deep knee bends, okay? And then you'll say, I can't wait until my resurrection body, right? I did those this morning just to kind of like get my blood flowing. It was my hips. My hips were killing me, right? I'm at that age, right? So the idea of a resurrection body to me is fantastic. The idea of a renewed heart and mind where all the scars and trauma of this world are stripped away and I'm at peace in my inner being for the first time in my own existence, that's good news. The grief is moved away and it becomes wisdom. The pain is moved away. It becomes uh, gratitude. All of the things that will happen when Jesus comes back, remakes the world and remakes our bodies. The resurrection of our bodies is guaranteed because Jesus is the first off the assembly line. What we see him doing, we're going to do too. And it's a, that's an amazing promise. And then the last is the power of the resurrection for living life here. It brings a real freedom. It brings a real power. I mean, what if you knew that the worst thing that the world thinks could happen will be reversed? The world thinks that the worst thing that will happen is that we die. And we know that's not the case. We have been given a life that we can never lose. Jesus lost his and got it right back. And he's promised that we lose ours and we're going to get it back in spades with better life than we ever had before. They, and, and you look at this passage, Jesus is calling these apostles to go into the world and they're going to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And do you know what's going to happen to all of them? They're going to die for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Jesus died for proclaiming the truth of God. They're going to die for proclaiming the truth of God. And they went and did it anyway. Do you know why? Because their resurrection is the secret sauce. Right? That's what's inside of them. They know it. They know what happens when you die. You come back like Jesus. So what are they going to do to me? Kill me? <laughs> That's not going to stop me, right? 
I'm going to come back. There will be the end of my mission. I get to go home. It only gets better. Kill me. That's fine. People who realize this have a freedom and a confidence and a courage. Some of you may have heard the name Justin Martyr. He was a second century Christian. He was converted later in life, and then he lived the last 30 years of his life as a Christian philosopher. And uh, at one point, he got the opportunity to kind of put his claims about Christ to the test because he underwent one of the Roman persecutions in the early church, and he was, he was beheaded by the Romans. And so as he's being put under trial, and he's, he's, he's receiving these threats, this is what Justin Martyr said. Tyranny and threats are powerless against Christian believers because of the hope they have. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. How could he say that? Because he knew. He knew what the secret sauce was. He could say that with boldness and confidence because of his assurance that the death of his body is not the end of his existence. He gets to go immediately into the presence of Jesus. And someday, one day, Jesus is going to come back and bring all those who have died with him to the earth. He's going to remake the earth. Heaven is going to be here on earth. Read the end of Revelation. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. The best of both worlds. All of the glory of heaven with all the good things of God's creation melded together in our experience. How wonderful is that going to be? So in the first Christian sermon, after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter is preaching and, and the apostle Peter said, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. And because of Jesus, it's impossible for death to keep its hold on you, on God's people who believe, who say, I believe you, I trust you. And I'm living according to what you say. And I'm dying according to what you say. And one day I'm going to live again according to what you say. And it's beautiful. This is the meaning of Easter. Let me pray.